Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Gregory Melville and Susan Fox and Kathleen Bromage. Hello, welcome back from your weekends. You know, today my thoughts go back to the immediate aftermath of the 2016 election. And I do remember that I was um, hearing on social media from people who I, I assume were pretty young voters, maybe hadn't really voted much at all before, and they were very unhappy with the outcome. And they said, well, can we just impeach him? This is a couple of days after the election. It was a word they knew, you know, they knew this word. They didn't really know what it was. Sometimes I would try to explain it to them, but... Maybe a way to think of it is that impeachment is a little bit like marriage. It's something you should only do occasionally and after great forethought. Impeach in haste, repent in leather. In, no, in leather. That's good. I meant leisure, but leather's even funnier. All right. So today we're going to talk a little bit about this later in the show. I should tell you that uh, Mitch Daniels, former governor of Indiana, will be with us. His suggestion is that the State of the Union, as a speech anyway, and it's not constitutionally required to be a speech, as, as a speech it is such a degraded thing that it would be best done away with. And also as a little, I don't know, a moose-bouche or something, uh, we're also going to talk about uh, an odd little facet uh, in the upcoming Super Bowl, which is that uh, the coach of the Rams has a person assigned to him whose job it is to grab him if he's about to stray out onto the field, which he's not allowed to do. It's called a get-back guy. So, um, and you might think you know, there, may, there may be other applications, other people who need get-back guys. I, actually, the person we're about to talk about might need, need a get-back guy, but good luck with that. Of course, I'm talking about President Trump, and joining us right now uh, is Yoni Applebaum, uh, historian and senior editor at The Atlantic, where he oversees the ideas section. He wrote the March cover story for The Atlantic called The Case for Impeachment. Welcome to our conversation. Hey, nice to be with you. So let's, first of all, talk about this whole idea. I think, you know, impeachment, obviously, it's there in the Constitution. It's there as a remedy. Um, but it's also a poorly understood remedy because it's a creature of Congress as opposed to a creature of the courts. One could argue that its, its limitations and possibilities are even more poorly spelled out than most traditional kinds of punishments or, uh, or, or, or ways of addressing wrong. So how, is it that we, how do we even come to an understanding of what impeachment is? Yeah, it's such a great question. I think for a lot of Americans, impeachment remains a, a big, scary word, and, and particularly after the fiasco of the Clinton impeachment in, in the 1990s, uh, something of, of uh, a word to be avoided at, at all costs. But, uh, you know, like most aspects of the Constitution, the best way to understand it is to look at how its meaning has been negotiated over time. The Constitution gave us a very bare, brains, uh, bare bones fr framework for a variety of things, from you know, judicial review to, to the way the legislature would actually operate. And, and impeachment is like this, too, that the actual constitutional instructions are, are rather thin. We can flesh them out by looking at the debates around the Constitution and, and the Federalist Papers. Uh, but the best way to understand it is, is to look how it's actually played out in practice over time. I mean, in these days, uh, it, trying to understand impeachment is almost a small literary or scholarly cottage industry. You've got books by Cass Sunstein and Alan Lickman. You've got all kinds of people like you and Noah Feldman, people like that, sort of trying 
trying to figure out if we can say something definitive about this. Now, one argument that gets made is, well, it's difficult to say something definitive about it because, yes, uh, it's in the Constitution and therefore has that kind of standing. But unlike most other forms of judicial remedy, um, it's inherently political. It requires the political will of a group of elected representatives and senators in order to make it happen so that somebody who could very easily be impeached under circumstances A, because the numbers are there, can't possibly be impeached in circumstances B because the political numbers are, aren't there. Uh, can you comment on that? Yeah, so this is a deliberate choice made by the, the framers who, who thought about where to vest this power of impeachment. They were creating, uh, I think we are, put ourselves back in their shoes, they were creating an immensely powerful executive. They were going to give the, this new president of the United States a, a variety of powers that hadn't been exercised by any king of England since uh, the Stuart monarchy. Uh, and they were aware of that, that they were creating this immensely powerful executive, and they worried about it. They worried that one day there might ascend to the chief magistracy uh, a man who was unfit uh, to discharge his duties. They had a, a really keen sense of human frailty. And the question is, what do you do about that? Um, how do you create a system so that if, if the wrong person were, were to come into the presidency, uh, you, you don't derail the democratic uh, experiment in the process? And what they came up with, uh, thinking about it, was, was that this wasn't actually, this is not a process of punishment. I think that's really important to understand. In fact, the Constitution spells out that, that after impeachment, uh, the separate process of punishment can go forward if it's merited. You can be tried on, on the same charge. Other than that, you, you, know, you can't have double jeopardy, but, but impeachment isn't actually a, a criminal process. It's not a, it's not a process of punishment. It's, it's a means of, of judging a president's fitness for office. And since that's ultimately a political judgment, uh, they decided not to put the power in the Supreme Court or some other judicial body, but rather to put it uh, within the body of the people's elected representatives and to uh, allow the House to impeach, that is to say, indict a, a sitting president, and, and then proceed to a trial which would take two-thirds of, of the Senate to authorize uh, the president's removal, a deliberately high bar. Now, I want to get in a second to your uh, your premise about this, but I think maybe we have to make one more stop uh, on the bus line, and that is at the phrase treason, bribery, or other high crimes and misdemeanors. On the one hand, that gives us something approaching a bright line that you either cross or you don't cross. But on the other hand, it's a little bit of a phrase of weeding a definition, particularly the second part, the high crimes and misdemeanors. What's your, I don't know, how do you react to that? Yeah, I, I think that it's a, a phrase that, that is prone to misreading, um, particularly in our contemporary context. There, there's a way that you can look at that and say, gosh, you know, it, it's, it's treason, that's, that's a crime, bribery, that's a crime, and, and high crimes and misdemeanors, that must mean crimes too. Uh, but it's a term of art that, that is uh, adopted by, by the founders with, with a conscious understanding that it means something quite a bit broader. They, they weigh putting other phrases in there. Maybe it should be mayor maladministration. And they say, well, no, that's not enough. Just not being very good at the job shouldn't be enough. Shouldn't be about policy disagreements. But when they settle on high crimes and misdemeanors, they mean something broader than criminal misconduct. It's a phrase which is deliberately broad enough uh, to encompass uh, a variety of acts which may never have been banned by statute, but which represent uh, a betrayal of the duties of the office. So if you think of the first two items in that list, 
uh, treason and bribery are both instances in which a president uh, is not pursuing the public interest, in, in which somehow that they've come to pursue some other set of interests. Uh, and, and that's probably the, the soundest way to read high crimes and misdemeanors, that, that these are uh, acts which, which threaten both the basis of democracy and the way that, that treason and, and bribery do, and, and which involve the president betraying the fundamental duty of the office, which is to serve the interests of the people or the country as opposed to some other narrow private set of interests. All right. So now let's get to uh, one of the reasons for hesitation. And you kind of uh, already laid that out. But people are sometimes uh, a little bit wary of impeachment because they think, well, it'll drive the company apart, country apart. People retreat to their respective corners. They feel very much under attack uh, and harden off their positions. Uh, and it's chaotic. It's, it's a, a inherently a disruption to the functioning of, of government, a president or anybody who's being impeached is going to have his mind centered very much on that process and maybe not uh, on all the other things that need to happen in a functioning government. Uh, your argument seems to be that, no, impeachment, because it is codified enough, is in fact the less chaotic way uh, of dealing with a set of problems, which in this case we already know that we have. Right, and, and less chaotic is, is an important qualifier, right? So this is a, a relative judgment mm -hmm. um, that, that uh, you know, of course, all of these concerns are, are entirely reasonable, and you wouldn't want uh, to embark lightly on a process of impeachment. Um, I'm going to steal your line about marriage, actually. But, uh, you know, there are moments where it serves a really valuable political function that other things won't serve. We are at the moment as a nation embroiled in a political fight over whether or not President Donald Trump is, is fit to serve, whether or not he is faithfully discharging the duties of his office, whether he has committed uh, crimes to be elected to that office, whether he has committed crimes in that office as, as he attempts to uh, derail an investigation into his conduct, uh, whether he has placed his private business interests ahead of the public interest. Uh, in violation of the Constitution's emoluments clause, that there's a host of, of swirling claims being leveled against this president, leveled, I, I should add, by sitting lawmakers uh, and in the quiet corners of Washington by lawmakers of both parties. And so we're there. We already have this incredibly divisive and bitter fight. Uh, lawmakers are not being particularly restrained in, in their leveling of these charges. What we lack at the moment is any kind of a process for their adjudication. And so if we stop thinking of impeachment as an outcome, that is, the, you know, if you can frame this as should President Trump be removed from office tomorrow or not? And instead, we start thinking of it as a process, a process of discernment and discovery, a rule-bound, orderly way for airing the charges that have been leveled against this president, seeing which of them are substantiated by the evidence, dismissing the conspiratorial ones, pursuing any that, that have a sound foundation in fact, and pushing them forward to resolution. That, I think, is precisely what the country needs at this moment. All right. So I'll give you another uh, cheap analogy that you can either steal or not steal. So you, we could also say that impeachment is a little bit like what I believe it was Joycelyn Elder said about abortion. It should be safe, legal and rare. So um, we what we don't want is a system where just to use some of the language you used at the end of that explanation that, you know, a few years from now, somebody says, well, I don't know. 
President Klobuchar is pretty weird and she's doing some pretty strange stuff. Let's let's start an impeachment process and see how bad it is. Right. Impeachment isn't essentially a thermometer where you try try to figure out like how bad the person is. There's got to be some threshold for this. Right. I think that's right. And, and, uh, you know, I I think that President Trump is, is clearly well over the threshold. The founders were quite concerned that we'd have a president who would serve at the sufferance of Congress. Um, 225 years on, I, I think it's pretty clear that, uh, you know, th- their fear of an overweening legislative power has, has given way to a presidency, which has strengthened itself immeasurably over the last uh, 75 years in particular. And so we have an immensely powerful president who can do all sorts of things uh, by executive order, uh, who controls a vast bureaucratic and administrative state, uh, which which was never contemplated in, in the framing of the Constitution. Uh, when you get a president with those kinds of powers, the question is, what checks exist on his authority? Uh, one is the courts, and and the courts are in fact and have been an effective check on on some of the things that this president has has tried to do. Um, but we don't really have very effective checks on a president who uh, ignores the basic duties of the office. We're finding out that lots of the unwritten laws of our democracy uh, can easily be abrogated without judicial redress. And, and what we're finding is, is instead a, a really dysfunctional state. There are unelected bureaucrats appointed by this president who have taken it upon themselves to disregard his orders, to take pieces of paper off his desk so he won't see them, um, because they don't think that the president is, is fit to make decisions. That's not how you want the process playing out. You don't want a president's closest aides asking the public to judge them by what they're preventing the president from doing. Uh, to the extent that those around the president uh, have reached that conclusion, what you actually want is the legislature stepping in and saying, uh, we've got this. We're going to take a hard look at it, and we're going to see whether or not uh, these judgments are warranted and sound. All right. I, I'm just throwing up various kinds of you know, counter-arguments just so you can bat them away. I'm, I'm pretty intrigued by what you've got to say. To, so don't interp- interpret me as the party of no here. OK, so another counter-argument might be, well, you know, I mean, the Democrats now have control of the House. Therefore, they have control of all the oversight committees. That means they can get, take testimony under oath, create a tangible and permanent record of whatever it is that's going on right now. What's wrong with that process and how much of an improvement Movement over that process is the impeachment process. Yeah, there's nothing wrong with that process. It's what Congress should have been doing for the last two years. It's kind of shocking that most of the Senate committees still aren't doing this. Uh, it's certainly what the House should have been up to all along. Um, it's a necessary process, but it's not a sufficient process. Uh, and in fact, if that's the only one that moves forward, it's going to be a problem. Uh, there was a Washington Post poll out this weekend, which found that many Americans believe that investigations of the president are likely to be partisan and unfair. Um, and they believe that because most of those committees are, are operating uh, as congressional committees are wont to do in, in a thoroughly partisan fashion. Uh, in the past, when we've launched impeachment processes, uh, they have generally involved uh, and I think the Nixon impeachment is the model here, uh, a committee going out, hiring up uh, a bunch of extraordinarily skilled and professional lawyers, often on a bipartisan basis, uh, to create uh, the investigative capacity to sift through the evidence, to hear from witnesses, uh, to allow for the cross-examination of witnesses, uh, and, and to move forward in, in a process that will strike the, 
the public as fundamentally fair. The other issue with, with those separate committee investigations uh, is that they're separate, that, that each of them will aspect, uh, will examine some aspect of the presidency, but, but like the parable of the blind men uh, examining the elephant, you're not going to get a picture of the whole thing. Um, even if, if you get a really good report on, on the trunk over here and the tail over there, uh, what you actually need uh, if you're a Congress trying to, to assess a president's fitness to serve is to try to assess his fitness to serve. And if you're not integrating these various uh, discoveries and findings in, in one cohesive process, uh, you'll never arrive there. Um, I, I, wanted, I mean, I can tell from reading your piece that you, you think the current leadership of the House uh, and maybe of Congress in general is a little bit, uh, the Democratic leadership is somewhat timorous uh, about this. But I mean, one thing... Well, you know, that's just the whole thing. If you come at, come at the king, you best not miss. Um, so there is that idea that to try to impeach somebody, even to get through the first phase of, of impeachment as opposed to conviction, and be unsuccessful uh, is the kind of loss uh, from which you can't easily recover. What's your response to that? You know, I can't predict the future, but I can look at the past. Um, even with Clinton, which is the, the scarring experience that the current House leadership lived through, uh, I, I think that lesson is probably overdrawn. Uh, Clinton did, in fact, uh, do quite well in, in public opinion uh, on the basis of, of impeachment. Um, the, the two things that, that should caveat, though, uh, are one, that uh, if you think that Donald Trump is essentially equivalent in his misconduct to, to Bill Clinton, then yes, you may draw that lesson. Uh, you know, I, I tend to think that, that the things that are under examination here are, are fundamentally different, and I think most members of the House do too, even as they draw their lessons from Clinton. The, the other thing is, is that his vice president ran and lost, and, and lost with most voters backing his opponents, saying that the character or trustworthiness of a president was the most important single attribute. Uh, there is lasting political damage to a president and his party when he passes through a process of impeachment. Uh, we saw that with Andrew Johnson. Uh, we saw it with Nixon and, and Gerald Ford. I, I think we saw it with Clinton and Al Gore. Uh, I, I think the Democrats are it, it, they're drawing fundamentally the, the wrong lesson. It's not that they should move forward with impeachment because it is a politically savvy move. That's a very bad reason to move forward with impeachment. But if they think that their duty requires them to begin impeachment proceedings against this president and all that's holding them back is the fear of the political consequences, then I think that's a fundamentally misplaced fear. Okay. I'll bring up one more counterargument and then we'll, uh, we'll talk about something else for a second. So uh, another counterargument that you deal with in your piece is, well, what about Robert Mueller? Robert Mueller, the special counsel, he seems to be meticulously assembling a mosaic of culpability, carefully tapping into place each little tile uh, to create a, a larger picture. And suddenly you've got uh, a House Select Committee blundering around, doing all kinds of things, dragging all, all kinds of things out into the light, serving wine before its time, and possibly disrupting his machinations. Okay, respond to that one. Yeah, it's, it's a good point. I, you know, Robert Mueller is conducting uh, a counterintelligence probe and, and a probe into potential criminal misconduct sur surrounding the, the election of this president uh, and, and possible interference by, by Russia in the elections. None of that is going to touch a wide variety of other issues uh, that this president has raised, uh, ranging uh, from the emoluments clause to the fact that his personal attorney has pleaded guilty to criminal violations of campaign finance laws and uh, paying off alleged hush money to a porn star. 
uh, there's a, a really broad array of concerns that are out there about this presidency, and, and Mueller's probe, even at its most expensive, is only going to touch a, a narrow portion of them. So, so that's one. Two, we don't know what's going to come out of the Mueller probe. We don't know whether or not the full report will be made available to Congress. Um, and if it is, it would be a fatal mistake for Congress to simply accept its findings. That's exactly what the Republicans did with Clinton. They didn't hold their own investigative process. They simply took Ken Starr's findings. He was the sole witness the committee heard from before passing its articles of impeachment. They never built in public a case for the impeachment of the president, and that's one of the reasons why it blew up on him. During the Nixon process, uh, the special prosecutor was moving forward with his own probe of, of Nixon and Watergate at the same time that the House impeachment inquiry was moving forward with, with its probe of the same things. Uh, instead of undercutting each other, the, there was deconfliction, and, and the two processes reinforced each other. When Nixon gave redacted transcripts to the House committee, which had demanded them, um, it became clear that, that Nixon was covering up what was on those tapes. That led the special prosecutor to ask a judge, uh, for the full tapes, and, and that's where the famous smoking gun tape came from. It was the two processes working in tandem, which surfaced the evidence, which had not been there, that, that actually um, uh, mustered the political will to, to uh, push forward with impeachment. Uh, and if the House had held back, it's, it's quite likely that that would not have happened. Right. I mean, typically, these things work in tandem, or they can work in tandem, right up to the end. Um, having watched one of these unfold here in my home state of Connecticut, uh, involving our governor, um, and also being reminded recently by listening to Bagman, which is the Rachel Maddow podcast about Spiro Agnew, a case I lived through, but really didn't remember all that well. But, you know, often what happens at the near the end is that the two parties Parts of the pincer kind of converge on one another, and the the sometimes the resignation uh, of uh, of a flawed or indictable executive is kind of negotiated alongside what the punishment is going to be. So, in, in the case of Agnew, I mean, Elliot Richardson ultimately sort of wound up putting together this deal where he had decided that it was more important that Agnew not be in the line of succession, especially given the fact that Nixon might be leaving pretty soon, and he didn't want Agnew there. The prosecutors, uh, these federal young federal prosecutors, felt like they had a slam dunk case that would have sent Agnew to prison. Ultimately, Richardson made the deal. No, you just walk out of here and we don't prosecute. Uh, similarly, uh, here in Connecticut, John Rowland, ultimately his resignation probably affected uh, the, some of the sentencing decisions that were made about him and, and how the Justice Department handled that. So, Yoni, I'm guessing that's another consideration here. At some point, these two things things come together or could come together such that, you know, rather than following the impeachment process all the way through, maybe Donald Trump is persuaded to do something else. Sure. I, I think that's a live possibility. I, I think one of the things that, that became really clear to me as, as I was researching and writing this is how much we don't know that there are a lot of really compelling questions that have been raised about the president's conduct or potential misconduct. Um, the evidence that's currently in the public record is, is highly suggestive. You have for example, his personal attorney pleading guilty to, to acts that he says were carried out at the president's direction. Uh, we don't know how strong the evidence in support of that is. Uh, it's not yet in the public record. Uh, and so without some sort of process of public hearings, you tend not to have the political will to remove uh, an executive from office, whether it's a governor or a president. And without the, the prosecutorial inquiries, you sometimes don't surface that evidence. So the two processes are, are healthy complements to each other. But instead, House Democrats have been uh, holding their breath and hoping that Robert Mueller will bail them out, 
hoping that uh, as that investigation moves forward, it may eventually relieve them of the responsibility uh, to act and, and to embark on, on what's likely to be a messy and time-consuming process. Uh, and, and that's probably an unrealistic uh, read of, of how these processes have played out in the past. So uh, one last question. We're talking to Yoni Applebaum, by the way, Applebaum, by the way and he is the uh, historian and senior editor at The Atlantic, uh, who has recently written The Case for Impeachment, the March cover story. So let's imagine that people take your advice. Um, and so what is... What does Nancy Pelosi say to the American public? Forget about what how this is all couched in terms of uh, actual motions and, and written arguments and stuff like that. Uh, ultimately, the American public need to be told why this is happening. So does she, does she tell, I sense in, in your argument, what she tells the American public is we feel the danger to our actual democracy is sufficient that we have no choice. It's our duty to do this right now. I think... That's right. I, I wouldn't presume to give the, the speaker political advice, but, but I think that what you would want to come out of this is a process uh, that was aimed at the health of American democracy rather than scoring partisan points. And so uh, when you look back at, at models for that, that would be uh, a speaker stepping forward and, and telling the public, uh, this is the best way to get to the bottom of these allegations. This is the best way for the public to know whether or not there is something to be concerned about. We're going to have this process of inquiry. We're going to call witnesses. We're going to review evidence. Uh, we're not going to simply make these charges on cable news panels. Uh, we're going to see how much is there, how much uh, fire uh, undergirds the smoke. Uh, and I think that the public would likely be quite receptive to that kind of a message because this is a moment at which uh, the questions are out there and people really would like to know uh, what is and is not the case. And, and there isn't at the moment a mechanism for establishing fact that there is no independent commission for examining the 2016 elections, for example. Uh, all we have is a bunch of uh, relatively sealed investigations, which occasionally surface in, in the form of indictments, new information that, that is often even more alarming than what was previously suspected. That is an unhealthy political process, however efficacious it is as a prosecutorial process. And, and that's a really important distinction. Robert Mueller's responsibility here is not to, to create a healthy democracy. That's Congress's job. His responsibility is just to go out there, figure out if there were crimes or, or um, if there's a counterintelligence threat, and, and then act to counter it. Um, his brief doesn't encompass this. It, it is up to Congress to, to defend American democracy, and, and so far it's been asleep at the switch. All right. Uh, so much uh, was said here, and thank you so much, Yoni Applebaum. Pleasure to be with you. All right. So I explained to you how to find his his article, stuff like that. All right. So let's see that Nancy Pelosi were the kind of person who just occasionally would just lose it and go charging out on the floor under the floor of the House Select Committee on Impeachments, uh, screaming her head off. She'd need a get back person. We're going to tell you about what a get back person is in the next segment. The president did nothing wrong. When you flee, take Huckabee, and finally I'll become. I'd ask Michael Avenatti to the prom And Kellyanne could move to Guam More than half the country's waiting So think about the ratings Cause when you gave your speech We would all tune in to listen You could finally go to prison I'm not involved, I wasn't charged with anything If you ever got impeached 
All right, the Super Bowl is almost upon us. And here in New England, most of us know something about the coach of the New England Patriots, uh, Bill Belichick. Uh, he's believed to be a white walker. He's probably been here since the dawn of time. And obviously he has to have somebody near him on the sidelines for certain reasons. For example, if he's about to eat a live kitten, that person would say, no, there's got a camera on you right now. Don't eat the kitten. But you know less probably about the L.A. Rams, uh, and you certainly know less probably, unless you're a big football fan, about their very young coach, Sean McVay, although we have talked about him on this show before. Joining us right now, one of our favorite guests from the past, Michael Bowman, is joining us, staff writer for The Ringer. He wrote a piece for The Ringer this weekend titled, Sean McVay's Get Back Coach is the Super Bowl's Worst Fashion Accessory. Uh, Welcome back to our show, sir. Thanks. I'm glad we can take a moment off from the peril of the Republic to talk about something that really matters. Right, exactly. And this could imperil the Republic in some completely different <laughs> way. So Sean McVay's a different breed of coach, a different breed of cat. Uh, and, you know, he's he's young, he's energetic. Um, what, why does he need... What, and he kind of comes across as somewhat cerebral, too. What does he need anybody to make him behave? Well, I, I think all of those descriptions are true, at least according to his reputation. He's viewed as a very smart, bright, charismatic guy, um, and he's the model for the new NFL head coach. We've seen teams in the, the most recent coaching uh, offseason trying to find the next Sean McVay, but uh, there's a video that uh, I think it was ESPN uh, released about his get-back coach, and what that means is Sean McVay during the course of the game, apparently needs another member of the coaching staff to follow him around within arm's reach at all times and move him, like physically move him around to make sure he doesn't bump into an official or stray onto the field of play, which is against the rules. Because the idea is that McVay is so intensely focused on his job of running the Rams offense that he just is either unable to consider the physical space that he inhabits and he needs an entire other adult human being to to manage that for him. And so typically, I mean, first of all, this is not an unusual thing. It's hard to tell, I think, uh, Michael, whether this is a formal or informal arrangement. Like if I were this person, I would want a piece of paper that said I was held harmless. You know, if I grabbed my boss's jersey or, you know, took hold of his shoulders and kind of whirled him around and pushed him away from what he was doing. But I I, I gather it's not so much like that. It's just an understood thing. That's your job. And I'm not going to yell at you afterwards if you do it. Well, I, you, so the get back coach has a, there is a, an actual use for this person. The NFL requires each team to, to dedicate one member of the, the staff to stand on the sideline and make sure the coaches and players don't stray too close to the field of play. There was a, an incident about eight to 10 years ago, I think, where an official got hit by a player who uh, was running down the sideline or an assistant coach uh, just wasn't looking. And so it's somebody's job to clear the crowd because mm-hmm. any crowd of people will migrate towards the the thing it's looking at. And that makes sense. But there are a couple individual coaches who are apparently so intense, so locked in that they need specific minders. And this is not this person's only job. The Sean McVay's get back guy is, uh, um, is the Rams strength and conditioning coach. Um, but as far as like that relationship, one of the other famous coaches who needs one of these guys is Clemson defensive coordinator, Brent Venables, who unlike McVay, who is sort of entranced, by the action on the field is just like intense and like needs to be kept on a leash, like a Rottweiler. Um, and, uh, uh, that said, I've seen better behave Rottweilers than Venables on the sideline, but he's actually turned around and, and shouted at, uh, 
at the coach responsible with keeping him in place um, when you know he tugs on his shirt or on his belt too too forcefully. So it's this uh, relationship is is it can be quite contentious. Yeah, it's sort of like. The guy, like if you're at the bar, you're drinking with some people and you give your car keys to some guy and say, don't give them to me no matter what I say, all right? Because, you know, I'm going to be drunk. I'll say anything to get my car keys back. Don't give them to me. But you're sort of saying that to this guy. You know, no matter what I say, you've still got to restrain me. Even if I tell you not to, you've still got to restrain me, which requires a certain amount of trust between two people. Yeah, I I mean, well, this is the... the, uh... I guess the thesis statement of my um, of my column from last week is that you don't want your multi-million dollar uh, you know guy who's doing this job because of his intellectual capacity, which is what what football coaches are hired for, to have that little constraint over his own actions. You don't want to need to to or you shouldn't. Uh, you should be you should be able to expect somebody with this much responsibility and this high profile and well-paying competitive a job that requires this much attention to detail to just be able to stay put, you know, to stand where they're told not to jump off the subway platform, as it were. Um, and apparently, and my my contention is that these coaches are capable of doing this, but it's part of their image. They want to look like they're so intense. Uh, that they're so driven, so focused, that they just are completely unaware of their surroundings. So it is like, first of all, you wouldn't want to have to, you know, it's obviously responsible to to designate a driver when you when you go out in a, in a group of people and so on. But this isn't even that. This is like that guy says, okay, take my car keys, but also I'm going to get really drunk and try to, to um, <laughs> take them back from you to impress onlookers. Yeah. And that's why I find this whole charade so ridiculous. That's why you're saying it's a fashion accessory. Well, I mean, you know, one thought that popped into my mind is that, you know, arguably one of the most successful coaches right now and maybe the model for this new generation uh, of professional sports coaches is not a football coach, but is Steve Kerr of the Warriors. And I bet you Mm -hmm. anything Steve Kerr doesn't have a get-back coach because, like, Steve Kerr is, you know, I mean, he really does seem to be superbly in control of his environment, which is kind of what you want a coach to be yeah and there have been at one time or another steve kerr gets angry and shouts at an official or, or somebody else and somebody does need to restrain him and you know if that happens once you know once in a season then that can be first of all an effective messaging tool to you know to media to, to fans to players whoever he's trying to uh convey that intensity toward but also the overwhelming majority of the time steve kerr is is able to govern his own impulses. Uh, whereas if he had a dedicated guy tugging on his belt all the time, the message would be, I can't control myself. And, you know, if you can't control yourself, how can you control the team? My contention is they, so whether it's, it's Venables wanting to, to uh, convey intensity or, or uh, sorry, um, passion or, or, or drive or whatever, or convey focus or in, in Sean McVay's case, they want to come off like all they care about in the world is winning this football game right now. And to me, Bill Belichick, who I described in, in the piece as being serene and stationary most of the time, like this is what somebody who actually cares about winning football games to the exclusion of all other things looks like and how he behaves on the sideline as opposed to just wanting to come off like he's that way. 
But I guess the the only thing that I would say, first of all, I mean, I love this piece. It's really entertaining. It's something I'm going to be watching for when I watch the Super Bowl. Um, but isn't all of this, isn't there part of a larger stage of kabuki? I mean, you know, those of us who've been sports fans most of our lives have seen all kinds of stuff, including obviously, you know, it's much more typical in baseball to have that manager who can who gets ejected intentionally in order to make a point or to fire up his team. But, you know, those of us who've watched Hoosiers, let's say 15, 20 times, know that at a certain point Gene Hackman's going to go over and, mm-hmm. and ask the ref to throw him out of the game because he wants Dennis Hopper to take over. But, I mean, like I feel like a lot of this stuff is very choreographed and exists to make a point as opposed to serve yeah. a real purpose. Yeah. I, I think that's exactly right, and I think that makes it – I don't know that that makes it any less, uh, you know, any less ridiculous. Um, <laughs> yeah, I, I, I was I was prepared to come on here and say, like, listen, I went for – you know, I went and poked fun at, at, at a, uh, an instance of kind of stupid-looking performative machismo in NFL football. Like, if, if it wasn't this, it could have been 45 other things. This is very low-hanging fruit. Um, you know, it's just the image of a, of a grown man being tugged around, you know, let, a, you know, let around like a disobedient toddler is, uh, is just kind of hilarious to me. So it, it was this, but it could have been a bunch of other things. Right. Uh, well, you didn't even need to make that case. I mean, I think I, I hope I set the appropriate tone by calling Belichick a white walker oh. <laughs> at the beginning. So uh, yeah. and, and uh, you fit right in. Uh, so Michael Bowman, staff writer for The Ringer, uh, wrote this piece uh, for The Ringer uh, this weekend uh, about Sean McVay's get back coach for the Super Bowl. I don't know. You, are you making Super Bowl predictions or anything like that? Or are you just concentrating on the very entertaining marginalia? Um, yeah, I, I predict Sean McVay will get his belt loops yanked uh, at least once. I'm, I mean, because you know, you, because he's not serious I, about his job heart, if he doesn't. So I think, yeah, I'm a pessimist at heart, so I, I think if I'm going to make a prediction, I'd probably take the Patriots just because, okay. you know, <laughs> what about the state of the world right now means the, the bad guys aren't going to win. But. Right. Yeah, and the ice dragon is already melting the wall. All right, so uh, thanks very much for your appearance here today. Uh, We're going to end our show today with a conversation about the State of the Union Address, a cherished rhetorical institution, or even more kabuki. That could be the through line between these two segments, kabuki theater. You know, a position coach or even Sean McVay now, I literally have to spend most of my time while the offense is on the field standing right behind Sean and ripping him out of the way when the official's about to run into him just so we don't get a penalty. There is an art to it. It is kind of like a dance. Maybe tango, like a sidestep into the path of the official and then remove back. Today's show was produced by Betsy Kaplan, with help from me, Kyone Wolf. The part of Bill Curry was played by Tom Brady. On tomorrow's show, we're re-airing our nose about the good place from last week because it got preempted by President Trump, who didn't even talk until after the show. Anyway, you'll hear it again tomorrow. And now, back to Colin. All right, so uh, we're ending this show on an exciting note. I I hope it it equals everything that came before, too, though. Uh, Joining us now is Mitch Daniels, former governor of Indiana, president of Purdue University, and a contributing columnist to The Washington Post. Uh, In his latest column, he advocates getting rid of our annual State of the Union address. Uh, Governor Mitch Daniels, thanks for— I I don't know which honorific to use for you. How do you want to be addressed, actually? Yeah, my first name will do just fine, Colin. All right. It's always hard with a Wiker because he's entitled to be called Governor. 
governor or senator. Um, all right. So, Mitch, uh, you, you've proposed something kind of radical. We've gotten uh, we've got we've grown accustomed uh, to the State of the Union address, although, as you point out, the Constitution doesn't really say anything about it, it being a speech. That's right. It just requires the president to send a message. And that's essentially all presidents did until uh, the early part of last century. And uh, Woodrow Wilson broke with that and and established a pattern which continues to this day of uh, in-person events. And there was nothing I thought troublesome about that until the last um, stretch, couple decades anyway, where it's become more and more a made-for-television performance, less and less a a sort of communitarian civic occasion, which I, I, frankly, and the piece says so, uh, uh, think we need more, not fewer of. It's just this one doesn't serve that purpose anymore. Right. It's worth driving home that other point, though, so let's uh, do it a little bit more. There are few enough civic ceremonies that we have that we universally partake of. Election Day is probably our real bedrock civic ceremony where, you know, hundreds of millions of us uh, all uh, participate in essentially the same act uh, for the same reason. But the State of the Union, I don't know, it's not too far down uh, the hit parade from Election Day. So, you know, in terms of it being a coming together, uh, as you're suggesting— Right. It's it's not something we should do away with cavalierly. No, but in this atomized uh, bowling alone world that we that we have, I, I, I quite agree that we need more time, more occasions when we stop for a minute, stop our arguing and and increasingly our our divisive, uh, uh, it appears, thoughts about each other. And, and remember, first of all, how incredibly fortunate we are to live in this country in this era uh, and uh, Secondly, that we have so much in common. And, uh, you know, Election Day uh, is, is less and less one of those occasions. You know, more and more people voting earlier and earlier in all sorts of different ways. I'm not saying those are necessarily bad ideas, but it has drained a lot of the um, commonality out of that event. But the problem with the State of the Union is, I, to me, is that it, it now is counterproductive, uh, that it accents division uh, it lowers, I think, esteem and respect for our institutions and the people who lead them because they have persuaded themselves or someone's persuaded them to be uh, you know, props and supporting cast players in a, in a partisan uh, spectacle. Well, let's go back to the idea of coming together. I don't know how longstanding a tradition this has been and whether or not it's been exacerbated over time. But one thing that has become very much a trope within the State of the Union is applause, right? What's going to get applause? Who's going to applaud? Is there going to be bipartisan applause? Uh, Is the opposition party going to sit very noticeably on its hands while the majority party is applauding? I don't know. Is that one of the things that has, has turned sour for you? Sure. It diminishes the entire event. You know, the, the after coverage, uh, people toting up the, uh, the applause or the now these days, sometimes the hostile uh, reactions uh, like, a, like the, they covered a sporting event. Um, you know, when up until the point, I mean, there was a point not that long ago when uh, it, you saw for a, uh, an hour or so people who differed on in big ways, respecting each other, uh, respecting whoever was speaking, and uh, and and through their their behavior, I thought uh, uh, bringing some decorum and therefore showing respect for the offices that they held. A lot of that is just uh, 
uh, withered, I'm afraid. And um, uh, I, that's why I think uh, maybe best just to go back where Thomas Jefferson put us and, and have a serious, sober, dignified discussion by whoever's president of the condition of our republic and uh, those things that uh, he or she believes ought to be done to improve it. So, okay, so here's, to me, the bedrock problem with this. It it is that so many of these State of the Union addresses, rather than fulfilling the constitutional obligation to inform Congress and therefore the citizens of the republic uh, about what they need to be informed about, is almost invariably a laundry list of the executive branch's accomplishments. Um, It's, I mean, information, comprehensive information, one would think would include stuff like, well, we tried to do this and it didn't go that well, yeah. you know? Um, yeah, no, that's right. That's right. I, I, I had to give eight of these at the state level, and I was always conscious of the need to, uh, be, to be direct and honest about our problems and then to spend most of the time suggesting things that I thought might address them. No, um, the, um, uh, I'm afraid that the, if Wilson um, took us on a wrong turn by turning it into a public event, and Franklin Roosevelt, with a flair for the new medium of his day, radio, uh, saw the opportunity to turn it into a propaganda event. Most presidents since have done that. There's another aspect. These speeches are also become deadly dull. Uh, having been in the in in part of two administrations and part of watching them, at least watching them come together. You know, every every agency and cubbyhole in the government uh, begs and pleads for their little piece of. Uh, policy to uh, or accomplishment to get mentioned. And um, uh, lastly, as, as I noted in the piece, the quality of the rhetoric has, has fallen from the, at least Wilson, Roosevelt, and people in their day spoke at a, a, a rather elevated level, spoke to the nation as adults. Scholars have measured this. They spoke in a post-high school vocabulary, which is, except for Reagan, uh, subsequent pre- most subsequent presidents have uh, taken part in a uh, decline of that. So we can't, we can't even say we're getting great speeches along with the unfortunate spectacle. Well, they're really long now, too, right? Yeah, exactly. Uh, again, give Wilson some credit. He was very concise, just a few minutes uh, uh, they have, uh, again, Reagan being a little bit of an outlier, they keep, they've get, gotten longer and longer, as I said, gusting to over a, an hour in case of people like uh, Clinton and Obama. Right. And occasionally, there are like these weird things that are embedded in them. And I, I think it's almost a test to see if you're still paying attention or whether the whole country has fallen asleep. At one point, uh, Bush 43, he did, in one of his speeches, he started talking about chimeras, about like these human-animal hybrids and stuff. <laughs> I'm thinking, what, is this the State of the Union address? This sounds like you know, some kind of science fiction novel. But it was almost like he was wondering, is anybody paying attention anymore? <laughs> so, so let me ask you this. I mean— well, we should say one more thing. I guess you should say one more thing, which is another game that is now played is how, you know, how can I test the weight bearing capacity of the balconies surrounding uh, the hall itself by loading it up with various American heroes uh, and paragons? Uh, I assume this is another part of the pageantry that, that falls uh, sourly upon you. Yeah, I, I think that... Uh, um in in tiny doses i don't suppose it's uh it's harmful to the to the purpose i wish these speeches were serving but once again it's become uh, pageantry's a good word for it, much more about stagecraft uh 
uh, President Obama named at least four different people, the symbols of this or that, that, that he had sitting there during the course of one of his speeches. And um, so um, that was another, I think, a device that uh, uh, that uh, over time has detracted from the from the dignity and the and at least the stated purpose of the event. Although, I mean, the, uh, just to make a, an argument in favor of the State of the Union address, you know, there are these moments like I'm doing this from memory, but there was a moment where President Obama kind of called out the Supreme Court right in there sitting in there and he's kind of going bad justices, bad justices. Mm-hmm. I think it was Citizens United. I mean, in a way, it is sort of everybody's in the room except for Kiefer Sutherland or whoever the designated survivor is. It is a chance to have a moment where everybody gets to at least you know, make some eye contact with everybody else. Yeah, but what do they do with it? I mean, I, 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 I think moments like that, and there have been cat calls, you know, from yeah. who, whichever side was in the opposition. You lie. Um, that um, yes, that uh, uh, I just think are, are unhelpful at a time when um, when we could be well served by reminders, uh, occasions, or uh, or other. Um, moments when uh, we think a little more about uh, our our uh, commonality as a people, respect our differences. I mean, in a lot of State of the Unions, there were people who were bitterly opposed, but they, whoever was president, didn't didn't uh, assault them from the from the podium, and whoever was in the audience didn't disrespect the president uh, from their seats. So, um, uh, you know, we've got plenty enough. I'm sorry to say, reasons for cynicism in our politics today, but it's not a it's it's a corrosive, not a positive factor. And we've got big problems to work on. Uh, uh, there are all kinds of disagreements, and there should be about how best to um, move move upward as a as a country and as a people. And I just don't think this particular um, event is is uh, conducive to that purpose anymore. Mitch Daniels, I've only got about 30 seconds left, so what do you want to have replace it? Just send Jared over with a thumb drive or something? Well, as I said in the piece, uh, yeah, I, I think I think a, a – by the way, it wouldn't hurt us as citizens to actually have to sit down and read something longer than 144 characters these days. And so if it was a written submission, uh, let's hope a lot more citizens would pause for 10 or 15 minutes, actually read and absorb it. Um, I, uh, I can't help but think it would be more – a positive uh, in its effects than what we do now. All right, Mitch Daniels, a man with a dream, former governor of Indiana, <laughs> president of Purdue. Go Boilermakers, and thanks for doing this today. Thanks for having me. Folks. All right, and the rest of you, thanks for listening. Thanks to Betsy Kaplan for pulling this all together. You don't just make Mitch Daniels appear out of thin air. I mean, you got to work at it. All right, we'll be back tomorrow with our preempted uh, The Good Place show.